when you're solving problems, your starting point pretty much every time is going to be complexity. If it's not complex, you know, it doesn't need solving. So there is a complexity as the starting point. And then in business, at least, your end destination is going to be conviction of a third party. Because unless you're a really standalone entrepreneur, and even then you need to convince clients at some point to fund your solutions, you need to convince third parties. And most of us in organizations, we have to convince other parties. And I often describe that, you know, problem solving is a subjective sport. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a strategy trainer, consultant, facilitator, and coach who specializes in helping teams and organizations solve complex problems. He's a rocket scientist by training who started his career in management consulting with Deloitte and then completed his MBA at INSEED. For the last 20 years, he's been lecturing on strategic thinking and complex problem solving with an audience that has included CEOs and management teams of major corporations and consulting firms around the world. Today, he's here to talk to us about his book and share some tips with us on how we can be better problem solvers and more strategic. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of How to Be Strategic, Fred Pellard. Fred, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you, Arpit. My pleasure. So Fred, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what was it like there? Well, actually, I am French and I'm about to be British. So literally, we're four days away from my naturalization or citizenship ceremony, as it's called. But I'm French. I grew up in France. Parents, my dad was in the army, so I'm an army brat, which many people will know, certainly amongst your uh, sort of US listeners, involves kind of uprooting every couple of years and then moving around when you're a kid. So you develop a couple of interesting habits, you know, one of which is you do sport whenever you can. And then the second is you also make friends wherever you can very quickly. So you learn to adapt in uh, lots of new circumstances. So when you're in high school, what did you think that your future would look like? Did you think that you're going to go into the military, follow your father's footsteps? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't remember, truth be told. I don't think I was there. I think, you know, we're going to go, it's very easy, but when I think of my teenage years, I know what was really on my mind. <laughs> I know it had nothing to do with careers. I think the order was something like, you know, sport, girls, and grades, <laughs> or, you know, a slight variation thereof. And so you took a, a route that kind of led you down to, to like rocket science and then made a shift from rocket science into management consulting that's it's a really interesting path that you've taken. So talk to us about 
how you made that transition or what was the desire to go into the business world? Um, well, it's possibly, so serendipity, you know, the, the French system is organized in a way where a little bit like in Germany, there's a real sort of value and premium put on the engineering career. So people who, you know, people study to become engineers. Um, and I did that a bit by accident. And then when that happens, when you get this um, and you go and work for a couple of years, then the next step is always to kind of look for an MBA. And uh, INSEAD, where I went to, not very, very original for a Frenchman. Uh, it's based uh, outside Paris, but it happens to be sort of the acknowledged best school in Europe. So it's the Harvard Business School of Europe, if you will. I spent a year there because obviously as Europeans, we do it faster. Um, uh, well, or, or we're lazier, whichever way you look at it. Um, and after a year, um, literally, you have your classic sort of recruitment rounds where lots of consulting firm, investment banks, corporates, probably not that many tech startup at the time, come and recruit. And I join a strat consulting firm in London. And that was a relatively common, so it was not the big career change that it might look. It was a very common sort of next step after INSEAD. And how did the inspiration and idea for your book come about from, uh, from all of your experience? So this book is I've been, I've been sort of teaching people how to be or how to be I've been training people on how to be strategic for best part of fifteen years. So if we if we go back to sort of you know graduate from uh, from INSEAD, go and spend five years in a management consulting or strat consulting firm, which is a Bain and McKinsey spinoff, then set up my own firm, do that for another five years, and then clients start asking. And obviously, if you're a small firm, you go to battle all the time against sort of McKinsey, BCG, Bain. You got to find a way to differentiate yourself. And one of the things that I was asked often is to sort of not just give people the fish, but teach them how to fish. Yeah, the classic. So can you teach us? Can you train us? At the time, I had something like 20 employees. So it was not particularly economical or sensible for me to you know, move from a model where I was selling hours of smart people to a, a model where I was just saying myself, whilst my smart people kind of twiddling their thumbs. So I resisted it for a bit. And after a while, I got, you know, I got sort of a big break with uh, three big clients in the same year uh, in Britain. So BBC, Sainsbury's um, and Channel 4 asking me to come and help. And then sort of it took from, you know, it started from there. And um, at some point, there is something about sort of rejection being either nature or God's way to tell you uh, the path you should be taking. And when, when you go to battle and you keep losing bids against McKinsey, and then you go to less battle and you keep winning the bids where people go, oh, we really like your training. Then at some point you hear the, uh, you know, you hear the voices and you follow the path. And so to, to answer your question, I've been doing that uh, for the best part of 20 years now. And um, in a very timely fashion, I had the idea about two years ago, I thought, okay, maybe it's time for a book. I think I was, I was relatively confident that um, nobody could just, you know, copy and paste my recipes that, uh, yes, you could learn the techniques and apply them for yourself, but probably be hard to sort of capture all the experience that I can give in the training room. And I thought maybe it's time now to sort of open the uh, the kimono a bit and let people see the recipes, you know, for the um, for all that I normally would just deliver for my clients. And then with the time frame of publishing and the likes, you know, and luck would have it, it comes out in just in the beginning of a second wave of the pandemic, and it's a perfect sort of indoors reading. You know, how to be strategic when it could have been titled "When the World Around You Crumbles." Yeah, I really enjoyed the book. I, I went through it over the course of a weekend and the very next oh, day. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no, it was, it was really <laughs> Sorry, really, it ruined your weekend? 
no no i absolutely loved it like i was just mind blown the entire you know entire weekend i was just ravenously just going through it and the following monday uh first thing i did when i you know logged in to work onto teams i emailed the next ceo that's uh, the ceo in line for our company i was like we need to get 10 copies of this book for everybody on the leadership team uh, it's that good yeah I'm, I'm really really excited to dig into it a few select sections. I don't want to give the entire thing away for everybody, but you you touch on some really important parts of the data science lifecycle because mm-hmm. um, we do solve complex problems. Yes. Um, so I guess let's let's start there. Let's start there uh, talking about how to solve complex problems. So in your you know in your book you mentioned that being strategic is a mindset. So talk to us about uh, what you mean by that. If I take a small step back, uh, you know, in the journey about sort of my uh, education that we describe, I'm a rocket scientist. So, you know, data science, not as intensely as maybe some of uh, your audience uh, practice it now. We probably didn't have, you know, when I was doing it, didn't have the same storage capabilities either. When I'm a rocket scientist, I went a bit into politics, which is a very different way to look at the world. Um, And I've been an entrepreneur for the last 15 years. And one of the things I kept noticing is how a lot of the people I work with were approaching problems differently. And, you know, it's not that complicated. When you see sort of 20 different people in the classroom every two or three days, after a while, you notice patterns. Um, Even if you're, you know, not particularly pattern discernant, but in my case, I spent a lot of time on patterns and then I spotted them. And what I, I contend is that there's effectively four main ways to solve problems. And I call them the expert the expert way, the analytical way, the creative way, and the strategic way. You can call them mode, if you will. And pretty much every one of us kind of can do at least the first three, sort of expert, analytical, creative. And then the way we spend or the time we spend in each of these in our days is a bit of function of habit, personality preference, because each sort of problem-solving route or path or mode come with a slightly different vibe. And also for a lot of us, it's a function of our, of our function of the employment, we, you know, the profession of our daily job. Not every job requires the same amount of expertise, analytical or creativity. And then the bit, so we'll talk about that maybe in a sec, but the bit that I really notice is that the hallmark of good strategic thinkers, very few people knew how to sort of use that, that path. And what I've developed effectively over 15 years is a sort of a model that shows what it takes to be a good strategy or to be good to be good at thinking strategically. And then I've sort of gathered a collection of techniques that help you achieve that level of, of confidence in um, solving problems strategically. Yeah, definitely. We'll get into those uh, four methods really soon here. But before we do that, in terms of problem solving, you talk about these concepts of complexity, completion, clarity, certainty, conviction, and uh, they're they're like different points on a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us about that? Can you kind of define those terms? You're right. They're sort of the, they're like the anchor points in the journey. Uh, if you think about sort of the, if you're driving along and you think about sort of east, west, north, south, when you're solving problems, your starting point pretty much every time is going to be complexity. If it's not complex, you know, it doesn't need solving. So there's a complexity as the starting point. And then in business, at least, your end destination is going to be conviction of a third party. Because unless you're a really standalone entrepreneur, and even then you need to convince clients at some point to fund your um, solutions, you need to convince third parties. And most of us in organizations, we have to convince other parties. And I often describe that, you know, problem solving is a subjective sport. 
it's the other person who decides whether you solve the problem rather than you deciding if you've solved the problem. And so if you think about a journey, you start from complexity, you finish in conviction, and then somewhere along the way, you've got to drive through one of two gates. If you were to think, if I could use maybe a a snow analogy for Canada, you know, it's kind of you go, if you go sort of downhill skiing, these are gates. And one of the gates you go through is clarity, and one of the gates you go through is certainty. And the different methods, and actually the third gate, as it were, might be work plan. And so between complexity uh, as your start point and conviction as your end point, which gate do you shoot for when you go downhill? Do you shoot for clarity? So you have something that's really clear, that's really manifest, that's easy to understand as an answer, but maybe hasn't been tested or can't really easily be implemented. So it's a more visionary approach. Or on the other hand, and one of the things you'll find, my experience at least of working with lots of data scientists, is the gate they will tend to, to shoot for is certainty. Sort of, you know, go through a place where I can back my conviction to third party with a bucket load of data. And obviously the third one is the expertise or is the sort of the, the work plan. But the takeaway from that is that going through the gate of certainty is fantastic when you can. So when you've got the data to back up your conviction, then it's a beautiful thing to do. What many people are discovering is that um, certainly more and more, you know, we're in 2020, we sort of hope that there'd be so much data that if you were the guy with the data, you could carry the day every time. And what we're seeing now is that's not true because there's so much data that actually on the other hand of your recommendation is going to be a couple of outlier data points, always going to be. And now people go, well, it's a bit of a 50-50, isn't it? And you go, no. But still, you can't carry the day. Thank you very much for sharing that. So yeah, I wanted to dig in a little bit more on these four modes that you talked about. There's expert, analytic, creative, and strategic. Starting with expert, can you give us an example of when we should use this mode or this method of uh, problem solving and maybe touch on some of the benefits and drawbacks of it? Yeah, so I'm going to go very quickly because effectively expertise is the mode that most of us are in most of the time, most of the day. And thank God for that. Because, you know, effectively, if you look at your LinkedIn profile or anyone's resume, that's a manifestation to the outside world of the things we say we're an expert at that. We can solve the problem without having to think. So an expert is someone that maybe if you're facing a complex problem and you either can solve it yourself because you've done it before, or if you can't, you go, I need myself an expert and you go and look for one. Rather than use specific instances, I always like to use sort of professions because although most of us use expertise a lot of the time in our days, some professions are literally spending 100% of the days in that. For example, uh, personal trainers. A personal trainer is someone who has the answer to how to make you lose weight and be more muscular, and they have no doubt about it. Because arguably, they do that every single minute of every day that they work. Uh, Police officers also spend a lot of time being expert or in the expert mode, because literally they are the law, what they say goes. And then, you know, estate agent or realtor thing they call in the US, you know. And so, again, they know more about the environment of a particular market than they do. So, and you might recognize with these three, a really good tip about spotting when you're in the expert mode is when you have your chest slightly puffed out, you know, like, like a personal trader, an estate agent, or, or a realtor, or a police officer. When your chest is puffed out, you know the answer, you're in expert mode. I like that analogy. That's really, really makes it really clear. Thank you so much. Um, how about for the analytical mode? Can you talk to us about an example of when we use this method and even some benefits? Or Absolutely. So for, for many of us, the analytic mode kicks in 
um, when um, we're faced with a problem whose solutions or a problem we've never encountered or a problem whose solutions has never convinced us. And so now, if I were to go with the physical embodiment of that, is literally is the hand to the skull, you know, to the, to the top of the skull. You're rubbing your head and you're going, I've never seen before. I don't know the answer. And the natural tendency at this point is to go um, and gather lots of data. And in a, it's hard to convey in a chat, but in my book, there's a very central visual, which is effectively a map that starts, if you, if you see it like that, it's like two axes, bottom left corner is complexity, uh, top right corner is conviction. And if the expert is a diagonal that goes from bottom left to top right, the analytical approach is a submarine. It goes horizontal first. It spends a long time in the problem space, turning all your unknowns into, into facts. And from that, deducting an answer. And a lot of people have a strong preference for that. So in particular, you might find that, you know, as was my case, people who tend to be tend to graduate from engineering school are highly more analytical as a population than the rest of the population that I will call civilians. And he says with bunny ears. And so, but there's lots of other professions to do it like that. For example, lawyers, um, specialist doctors, um, investigative journalists, uh, engineers, where we've talked about. So lots of professions have a tendency to just first wanting to turn their unknown into facts before they conclude, you know, the deductive approach to problem solving. It's a fantastic way to buy a car. You know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's an intelligent way to buy a car. Now, you may not be an expert at buying a car, but if you're good at analytics, you're probably not going to buy a lemon. Yeah, I, I really like the, the those visuals that you had on there. The uh, the roller coaster with the the submarine helicopter, and mm -hmm. this next one was my favorite one. And the one it resonated with me the most in terms of how data scientists work, at least you know in my experience. And that was the creative mode. Mm -hmm. uh, can you can you give us a uh, example of when we would use this and and some of the benefits? Yes. So one of the things, if you think about the analytical mode, people who are kind of driven by data, they're analytical, spend the time to get the data. Um, a lot of what these professions share is one similarity, which is a lot of the, the essence of their work is in the past. Lawyers solve past problems. Investigate journalists reveal past crimes. Engineers just build things in the present. But you see a theme emerging. None of these people really focus on the future. And so when you focus on the future, the data runs out of road and you have to use a different method. And there's lots of professions um, like, uh, you know, advertising um, or A&E or firemen or actually the, the, the military, lots of professions where they know every day that the data they have is unreliable. And so what they do is instead of spending a lot of time gathering data, they very quickly imagine three solutions, bam, 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 you know, or more, bam, 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 you know, three or four solutions really, really quickly. And you're right, when you talk about sort of data scientists will do that, I would contrast it maybe with data analysts who might reach for the, you know, the big bucket of data. And so it's that in my little visual, it's really going vertically, really quickly, coming up with three or four ideas without any data. And that's the important thing. If you're an emergency doctor, you don't have time to do lots of analysis and tests. You've got to decide really, really quickly. Now, of course, unless you're a bit crazy, you're not going to go, oh, I know what the answer is. You're going to come up not just with one hypothesis, but with three or four. And then you will very gingerly, very carefully 
test them. And so what we talk about creative here, it's usually either relying on sort of, uh, for some people, like, you know, advertising executives or fashion designer, it's a bit more instinctive for others like scientists or, you know, emergency doctors or military officers, it's a bit more trained. But both of these approaches go quick, quick, quickly, very quickly identify three or four solutions rather than spend a lot of time gathering data about your problem. So shift to the solution space rather than spend time in the problem space, which is why sort of the analogy is very simple. You know, analytical is submarine because it starts underwater, spends a lot of time on the water and comes out at the very end of its assignment. Whereas, as you know, a helicopter, a lot of helicopter pilots get airborne and then go, okay, where are we going? Because it's so flexible that way. So it's about getting airborne, come up with options, and then think about what you do next. And when we're coming up with these solutions, a few possible solutions, do they all have to be quote-unquote good solutions? Or I would not call them solutions, and I always call them options. And sorry, I may have called them solutions in a second ago, but I, re- I usually, when I have the visual in front of me, I always go option, 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 because one of the sentences I repeat in the book and I use often in my training is, you don't need real data to have real options. You need real data to have real solutions. And that's one of the slight drawbacks. So a lot of the people I work with tend to be you know, analytical in their, in their mindset, in their day-to-day uh, profession. And a lot of the thing I do with them over the training is slightly sort of correct their posture and remind them that data is fantastic and data is really good at killing options, but not very good at coming up with options. And so I, we'll see in a minute, we'll talk about the sort of strategic approach. Um, so very early, what, when you come up with these three or four options, um, there's lots of techniques of how you do it, but I wouldn't call them solutions just yet. You know? And uh, moving on now to the uh, strategic method, talk to us about that. Maybe give us like, you know, the example and some benefits like you were just doing. And so what you have is, um, you know, if, so we were talking about sort of the creative method, the creative method, you go really, really quickly, you have three or four ideas. And usually what happens, at least in a really creative environment, is a solution emerges over time through a matter of, let's call it subjective preference, either of the most senior person or of the designer or, you know, sort of of the group over time. Um, But in a lot of circumstances, the decision a company takes, for example, or a team takes, has to be validated a lot more objectively than that. And when you find yourself in that situation, where we have with the strategic approach is literally a bit that goes, if it's strategic, it's in the future. So the only way to start from the beginning is to go vertical, is to identify three or four ideas really, really quick, three or four options really, really quickly. And then sort of slightly go Jekyll and Hyle, go from a very optimistic, very creative uh, view of the world, and then flip and go, now let's go and destroy all of them. Let's, Let's really test them through fire to find out which one uh, resists contact with whatever limited data the future can throw at them. And if you were to draw this in our little map, you'll recognize a shape that's a bit like a hump. You know, you go up first, then you go down really negatively. And here is an interesting thing. When you have five, six, seven options that you haven't had time to get attached to, then you don't really, you're a lot more objective because you don't really mind which one turns out to be wrong. You know, you'll recognize with your, with your activity and your podcast, you know, every, every weekend you might go, right, maybe I could try these four things. And then when you have four ideas of what you try next, uh, the the creative way to do it is to fall in love with one of the solutions. You go, I really like that. I really so I'm gonna I'm gonna really focus on that. 
And that's a perfect way to choose the color of your bedroom because that's really just down to you. If you're, if you're trying to earn a living and you know, keep the people happy around you, keep your customers happy, then you're actually quite neutral about the four ideas you've had until you've had feedback from the world. And you know, Mike Tyson's well-known expression, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah? And so all four ideas can be beautiful and very creative. And then the world on the other side of the door is full of sort of bullies with punches that are going to punch it in the mouth. And as a strategist, instead of shying away from that, you invite it because you go, I want to know early which of my ideas is wrong so I can reallocate my scarce time and resources towards the one that work. And then once you've done that, now you feel even, you feel very confident in your ideas. Why? Because it's a bit like, you know, uh, one of these talent shows where you've survived so many rounds and then all of a sudden you've got one idea, that's the winner. Now you're happy to go and sing it to the world and convince others that it's the best idea for the problem. And so in conclusion, what we've talked about is we've talked about sort of a diagonal staircase of, you know, the, the expert staircase. Then we talked about a um, horizontal submarine that was very analytical and all about the research. There was a vertical helicopter that goes up very quickly for creative discovery. And one of the big reveals, sort of both in the book and in training, um, is the realization that many for many people that, oh, so strategic is just creative plus analytical. It's like the combination, oh, I get it. And that's like... You know, it's one of these where sometimes when something was there and it feels like, and a lot of people tell me like, it was on my mind, but you plucked it out of the air. And I go, absolutely, I, I don't claim more credit than that. But I, I, I voice something that many people feel, which is strategic, is a combination of creativity and analytical. And the really, really big comment is, um, more often than not, uh, they hadn't spotted that it's creative first and analytical second. So first have lots of ideas about a problem in the future and then bring the, the cavalry of the data to sort of uh, whittle them down uh, to one. And so you talked about, you know, how does one apply that in the business world or, you know, which, which professions do that's obviously, you know, anything that has sort of strategy in its title. So if you think about sort of a marketeer, might be someone who have lots of ideas about campaigns, someone who's a strategic marketeer will probably have some expectation about what the audience is or the target audience and the budget she has in mind. And then once we'll take all these ideas from marketing, but then we'll talk about lean, you know, either discuss them or analyze them or test them before really putting a lot of cash behind it because you want to double check. So when you want to double check your creativity, you're probably in the strategic environment. So you might be very creative in going to buy a t-shirt when you go shopping. You go, oh, I'll buy this one and this one, and you pick four, that's fine. You're probably going to be a little bit more double-checky when you buy a suit because you might try a few more and you're not going to walk away with all of them. And I know that trying a suit sounds very pre-COVID, um, <laughs> but it's a, if you know the approach then strategic is usually the things you do when you're able to be both creative and analytical and the stakes are high. And um, just a final comment, for most people, we tend to have a, and that's kind of the, the law of nature as it were, we tend to have one of these two highly developed. So people are either very creative or not great at analytics. So I work a lot with TV broadcasters and program makers and they won't um, mind me saying that they're very, I find them very creative, but not very good at sort of killing their babies. 
Um, and I work a lot with, you know, finance people and finance people are superb analytically and not always very good creatively, at least in a business context. And so the best way for a person to be more strategic is to develop the muscle on which they're slightly underdeveloped. And obviously the best way for a team to become more strategic is either have lots of people who are quite strategic themselves or at least learn to leverage the relative strength of each participant at the right time in the project. Absolutely love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for digging deep on that because that was such a foundational part of the book. And to your point, yeah, definitely um, developing a muscle in both analytic analytical type of thinking and creativity is super important. After having spent very significant portion of my life being in the analytical mode, mm-hmm. I've now been shifting more towards that creative thinking type of um, type of mode, and. Uh, it very much so is like a, a muscle, like I keep like a idea journal now where every morning I force myself to have 10 ideas um, just to keep flexing that muscle and just researching creativity and things like that uh, recently has been one of my top interests. And I love how you kind of fuse that together into your book with this roller coaster of strategic thinking. Thank you. So speaking of your book, I love to get into a section that you have that I think the audience is really going to be able to resonate with because uh, I feel like it, it really closely ties into the work we do as data scientists, and that is the pyramid principle. Um, we start off the chapter talking about the difference between qualitative and quantitative problems. Would you mind sharing the uh, distinction with us? Uh, yeah, so a, a classic qualitative problem is, you know, what's my life going to be like next year? That's a really big qualitative problem. And then the quantitative problem is how much will I earn in 2021? Okay. And now you could probably tell that if you try to resolve how much will I earn in 2021, quickly you're going to talk about work and employment and income and, and clients and things like that. And you're going to probably end up with something that's sort of mathematical, you know, either number of hours and salary per hour or number of clients and revenue per client. And um, if you're talking more qualitative, you know, what's my life going to be like next year? It's a bit harder to grasp these problems. Um, and so, that, that would be sort of my illustration of the difference. Now, in a business context, you might imagine that, you know, a, um, a big quantitative objective would be, let's gain 10% market share in market X. A more qualitative one is make sure we ride the wave of A, whatever new trend A happens to be. Yeah? So you always have, it, most problems can be sort of, are a mixture of qualitative and quantitative, and it helps to solve, to sort of treat them as both, on the one hand, entirely one, and on the other. So to improve your life, spend a bit of time thinking, you know, what will my life be like next year in an entirely qualitative way, and then have the discipline to go and do the entirely quantitative way, you know, either a few minutes later or the next day. Seems like the qualitative problems, they tend to come with a unique set of challenges, don't they? Yes. I think the main one that I would see is that a qualitative problem usually starts as a question with a sort of very open-ended. So, you know, what will my life be like? Or uh, one of the uh, examples I use often in training is, you know, about two people getting married and like, how do we make sure that our wedding is a great success? And uh, more recently, you have things like, you know, how do we cope with COVID as an organization, not to mention as a, you know, as a country. And one of the things you might observe is every time you ask yourself a how-to qualitative question, it raises anxiety. Because the honest answer is, I don't know, you know, stop asking me that. You know, it's kind of like people who've been 
was dealing with that with either team members or, you know, fiance. And you go like, stop asking me questions about problems in the future that I don't have the answer to. And so one of the things, not me, but a much smarter person called Barbara Minto, who was the very first consultant at McKinsey, spotted years and years ago, is she realized that there was effectively a fantastic way to solve um, qualitative problems. And um, now she's written a very, very long book, which is quite complicated. Um, I love the technique. I always give her fantastic credit, but you could probably boiling down to two tips, which I do in the book. And I'm happy to do now. The first tip would be whenever you hear a question of a qualitative nature, you know, what, what will my life be like? You should stop right away and refuse to solve this problem. You should solve the, the flip side problem. In other words, instead of asking yourself a question, you turn it into a positive statement and you're going to solve it. So instead of saying, what will my life be like? You go, my life is fantastic in 2021. You just put it there and usually it's, a, you know, it's either on a flip chart or on a piece of paper or on a window. If, you know, if you're writing on a window, you go, my life is a great success in 2021. And pause for a second and you will notice that there's already a kind of, the anxiety disappears a little bit because it's a, it's a beautiful objective to look at. So I'm not going to call it positive mental attitude because we're going to do something in a second that's a bit different from just going positive affirmation. My life is beautiful. My life is beautiful. It's my life's a great success. And then the second big tip is, and then you ask yourself two questions. The first one is what would need to be true for that to be true? So it's not, you know, positive affirmation. I'm going to say it and then the universe delivers. Bollocks. Oops, sorry, I don't know if I can swear. But um, uh, let's pretend it was not a swear word. So, you know, it's not of, it's, it's, my life's a great success. You go, well, we need to be true for that to be true. And then you might go, well, if I still have a job, uh, you know, intense confinement uh, is bearable for my romantic partner and I, and, and, and nobody in the family uh, catches COVID. And then once you've done that, you go, actually, let me reorder it a little bit. Let's go. Nobody in the family catches COVID. My romantic partner and I are still in, on friendly terms six months from now when we haven't left the house. And then I still have a job. And then the next bit that you do is you ask yourself the following question. Can I think of a scenario under which, you know, let me call them sort of A, B, C are true. So can I think of a scenario where you know, family is healthy, relationship is healthy, and I still have a job? And yet, my life is not automatically a great success. And you go, oh, yes, if my romantic partner has lost a job. Okay, so let's rewrite the third subset and call it we, we both have a job. And what you do is this interplay of having a, a beautiful objective high up a page that goes, you know, our life is a great success in 2021. And then finding three building blocks under it, which is usually quite easy. And then having the discipline to go, can I think of a scenario where these three are true? And yet the one above is not automatically true. Now, uh, like everything, it's a technique. So, you know, pretty much, I'm pretty sure every single of your listeners will probably know how to drive. Uh, some of them might even know how to drive a stick. And then when you know how to drive, you just forget how blindingly easy it is, but you forget how hard it was to learn. Because once you get the skill, you get the skill. And in the book, so there's about something like 15 pages on this called the Pyramid Principle. And in the Pyramid Principle, I go into a bit more detail, I give more examples, I show people a few things. On the book's website, on strategic.how, there's a few other answers to exercises. You've got to practice a little bit, but I usually mention to people that by the time you've done your third pyramid principle, you go, oh, you recognize patterns. You go, oh, it's always the same thing, which is instead of going through life asking myself, how do, you know, how do I work with my team? Oh, I'm going to write at the top. 
of a page, something that goes, uh, my team is being super productive and, and healthily so during COVID, okay? And then you go, right, oh, and you smile because that's a beautiful outcome and it's a lot less stressful than how do we do it? And you go, if that's the outcome, what would need to be true for that to be true? You write three post-its under it, you revisit a bit, you ask yourself, can I think of a scenario where the three are true, the one above is not automatically true? And that sentence, by the time you repeat it 10 times, it really lodge, lodges itself in your brain and you go, how did I not know that? And that's effectively a way to solve. So it was discovered by Barbara Minto sort of 30 years ago, but it was probably positioned for a very long time. When I first tried training people in that, I was following her way to describe it. And it kind of like was super complicated and people were like nodding, but nobody applied it after the training unless they work at McKinsey. And then what I found over the years is I kind of went, uh, you know, sort of Nikado and, and I sort of remove things, remove things and go, oh, it still holds, it still holds. And I remove and I pet it down and pet it down and pet it. And you go, oh, so actually this thing boils down to the three things I just told you. you know, put something positive at the top, ask yourself what would need to be true to break it down. And then finally, ask yourself, you know, can I think of a scenario where the bottom three are true and the one above is not automatically true? What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode yeah absolutely love that part in the book about the pyramid principle and it lines up so well for data science tasks right it's essentially taking a big problem and all of a sudden you've, by going through this exercise, you've broken it down into discrete chunks. And all you have to do to complete this large problem is just attack each discrete chunk and package it together and you have your solution. So I'm really looking forward to writing a piece, um, utilizing your framework and applying it to a data science project that's coming up in the, in the near future. So I'm looking forward to, to sharing that with the audience. In the step that you talked about, we need to come up with positive statements what are some traps that we might fall into? Like, is it possible to have a statement that on the surface of it looks positive, but has a bit of doubt built into it? What do, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure I understand. For example, like if you have a positive statement, right? For example, we talked about the wedding is a great success or something like that, right? So if one of the conditions is the wedding is a great success, and we have a subheading underneath there that says, if we are able to secure a location and our guests practice social distancing. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, to me, that sounds like that statement has a bit of doubt built into it. Like, is, is it possible that, you know, it sounds positive, like, yeah, we can have this wedding happen if this condition is met. But it's not like entirely positive. It might is that kind well, of that's, sense? So these are these are two different things. So one of the so what happens is if you take something, imagine I'm going to put myself um, or I'm going to put us in the shoes of Elon Musk, mm-hmm. um, and you know Elon Musk, a lot of his kind of 
spare time is dedicated to the, you know, taking us to Mars. And so you see that you go, um, instead of going, how do we colonize Mars? He, literally in his mind, um, he has something that goes, you know, life on Mars is successful for humanity. And you go, well, we need to be true for that to be true. And amongst the bit that goes, you know, we need to be able to get there. And then we need to be able to get there. Now, obviously, a third one is we need to be able to sort of live there and stay there. But And you go, we need to be able to get that. What needs to be true for that to be true? And then if you trickle and trickle, you know, you go from three, you go then nine, you go 27. So I'm, I'm, I'm in, in front of me, I'm doing my classic sort of waterfall cascade where, you know, or actually a pyramid. It goes, you know, you go from the top. Ba, 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 ba. By the time you get to 27 or 81 of your building blocks or post-its, of course, you're going to find some that are dead easy and others that are complicated. So in the wedding example, one of the building blocks might be, let's get everyone's email address. Well, that's going to be quite easy. Another building block will be, let's optimize the work, the, 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 the seating area, so that everyone is near, near people they're going to talk to. You know, well, that's going to be a bit harder. And so these are two different things. So once you have the structure of a problem, what are you going to find? If you remember our little roller coaster is we go up to clarify with the structure. And then once you have the pyramid, you go, right, let's go and make it happen. And when you go and make it happen, sometimes even during or sometimes even ahead of the making it happen, you realize that some of the conditions are a bit harder to achieve than others. And so I wouldn't say that it's it's so much an issue of sort of feasibility or desire or, or, um, or doubt. It's more that some of the components that will guarantee your success are harder to achieve than others. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. So you have a um, really unique perspective. You kind of add your own twist and remix the lean startup philosophy a little bit. Would you mind talking to us about that? Yeah. Oh, so I'm a great fan of lean startup because if we continue on the sort of, yeah, if you think about sort of the, the roller coaster of strategic thinking, it's kind of, you've got to go up to a point of clarity and there's three ways really quickly. And usually, by the way, data scientists and sort of scientists and engineers in general latched onto that really, really well. Because um, usually they're really, so they're both quantitative and structured, but somehow they forget to be a little bit more creative. And then when you show them creative techniques that are highly structured, they go, oh, yes, thank you very much. I'll have that. And so we've talked about, so the pyramid principle is a creative technique that's highly structured. uh, That I've got a few more in the book, sort of mutation game, the happy line. And when you have all of these and you arrive at a point of clarity, you've got three or four options. Okay. So IKEA is a big client of mine. Um, it's no secret to, you know, it's in the public domain that uh, their big blue boxes were a fantastic asset for years. Now it's creating a little bit of a problem for them because, you know, not just with the pandemic, but the, the, the trends were that not everyone wanted to go and spend their Saturday going traipsing around these big blue boxes with big car park and big queues, etc. And so they've been thinking for a long time about alternative ways to reach their customers. Customers are happy, but the blue box as a channel is not working great. Now, if you're IKEA, you can have four or five ideas. One of them might be open smaller stores in town centers. Another one might be open a secondhand store. Um, so allow people to kind of share and swap, you know, for, become a platform where you allow people to resell their secondhand furniture at different, closer to the, uh, different locations, closer to their homes. A third one might be partner with Uber so that uh, instead of, you know, the current IKEA delivery timeframe is about six weeks, instead of getting your, your bookshelf in six weeks, you get an Uber guy who goes and waits and is paid whilst waiting and then brings that back to you that very same day. So imagine you've got these three ideas. 
What do you do next? Now, in most organizations, if we've got these three ideas on the table, let me call them sort of, you know, a small store, secondhand, and Uber partnership, people will have strong views. Person who hates Uber for various reasons goes, oh, we can't do this one. Um, or someone will say, well, my grandmother, when she went to the blah, blah, blah. So lots of anecdotes and personal stuff. So this is kind of words. Words is a great way to test ideas, to get people's feeling. It's not super objective. So in many organizations, they turn to, you know, either, you know, data scientists or one-off data gathering projects to go and analyze things. And then the third way, you know, you can, you can assess ideas through words, you can assess them through data, but you could also assess them through actions. And some of you will say, well, actions is just data in waiting. I agree. Action is kind of like, or action generates fresh data as part of this general thing. So what do you say? Action is literally test. And when we talk to people, you know, testing, there's the, um, there's lots of schools. You've got Scrum, you've got Sprint, you've got Hackathon, you've got lots of these things. Um, I particularly like Lean Startup. I like the way Eric Ries has sort of codified everything. Um, with a little caveat, and I think that may be what you're alluding to when you're talking about the twist, which is if you're IKEA, you can't just go fast and break things. You can't just kind of try shit and see, oops, sorry, try and see if it happens. You know, because your customers are expecting more of you and because also journalists are, you know, in the media are, are keeping an eye and you can't just take risks the way you could as a startup. And so typically one of the things I add, and I mentioned that in the book, is if you're a slightly more established company, usually what companies do is they go, we're a respectable company, so we can't afford to fuck up. Or what they call it is, you know, failure is not an option. So what usually happens is established large company fail big because they can't afford themselves to fail um, small because it's risky for people's careers. And in particular, it's risky for the brand. And so one of the things I highlight is how if you're a large corporate, you can succeed, you can apply the Lean Startup with two little additional bits. The first one is find a, a willing partner, find someone who's happy to play with you. And it might be another brand. Uh, so we talked about, for example, the case of Uber. Now, Uber might be happy to play with you testing this thing. And instead of calling it an IKEA venture, it might be an Uber venture because we all know that Uber tests stuff and not everything that Uber tests works out, you know, helicopters and speedboats and all of that stuff. And so Uber has a brand that's slightly more resistant to risk than IKEA. So that might be one. If you think about the uh, secondhand IKEA thing, you might want to try it in partnership with Oxfam or another charity that will effectively give you a little bit of air cover. So in, for established organizations, rather than go, we can't afford to take tests because if it fails, it's a risk on our brand. There's an obvious answer, which is find, and because, you know, everyone has a different sensitivity to different perceptions. So find another brand that doesn't have the same fear as you about what constitutes risk for their brand. So for example, for an insurance company, paying out in case of something going wrong is a good thing. It, it's brand building. And then my second big tip on uh, Lean Startup is this idea that um, when people design, you know, most people understand MVP now, you know, minimum viable product, design something, and then they go test it and learn. And one of the things I found both with large companies, you know, like IKEA or uh, the BBC or HSBC or, or small startups, you know, like Moneybox, you know, Bloom and Wild or a few others, and you kind of go, one of the things you do is make sure when you have a test, it's kind of divided by 10. So look at your budget for the test and go, right, let's divide that by 10. 
And one of the things you find is when you divide the budget by 10, you are typically dividing by 10 the supply side of your test. So the complexity of your minimum viable product. So if we take the IKEA example, most people understand it quite IKEA quite well. Um, you know, IKEA, one of the ideas was to do mini stores for students on campuses, you know, so, so create mini IKEA stores on campuses. Um, and if you go, what's the minimum viable product? Well, it's a small store on campuses, but that's going to cost you know, maybe $100,000 to set up. You do one in the US and you see what happens. And you go, right, if we only have 10,000, then immediately people go, oh, pop up. Let's just gonna, let's not make it a store. Let's maybe use a cafeteria at the bottom of a whole of residence somewhere. It doesn't matter if it's a bit grotty uh, because we'll call it, you know, Ikea pop up for th this month. And then I go, right. Now, if instead of $10,000, you've got $1,000, very quickly people go, oh, well, we use a truck, you know, rather than a pop-up store. Let's literally, it's like the food. Rather than a pop-up restaurant, let's use the food truck. Let's just do the IKEA truck because that's just 1000 bucks. And you go, okay, let's go one step further. What if we have only 100 bucks? Oh, and then everyone goes, well, why don't we print a big banner on the side of a building with a big arrow that points to a person with an iPad? And now what you've tested is you're still testing the demand side exactly the same, which is will students buy more furniture if it's made easy for them on location? But you've gone where by reducing the budget from 100,000 to 100, you've reduced it by 1,000 in three iterations. And all you've changed is the supply side of the test. And that very few people spot that. So a lot of people understand Lean Startup, you know, A, B testing. So you use different, you know, you try two different solutions. So you have one to compare it to. Um, but they don't necessarily understand that you get even better solutions if you pare down and pare down and pare down your MVP at all times. Absolutely loved it. And the book is just chalk filled with examples like this to really get you to think about how to approach your problems that you're working with as a data scientist as well. There's enough parallels there for you guys to draw to your own experience. I highly recommend everybody getting this book. It is. So let's, let's jump into some of the um, later portions of the book, talking about something I know that the audience is going to really love to hear is trying to sell your ideas and get buy-in for them. Um, you have a chapter on impactful words. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about the importance of impactful words, and especially when we're trying to get buy-in for our plan. So one of the things, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, my then wife and I realized that we were using different words to talk about the same thing. And we're realizing that when we were in good moods, we could see more of the world. So we really saw that we allowed each other to see more of what, or to perceive more what was around us. But when we were into conflict, it was, it was actually problematic. And what I've discovered, uh, the bit that helped me make sense of it is something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which has a, you know, it puffs itself up a little bit as the study of human excellence. And, you know, I can make you, I can make you quit smoking, et cetera. So some of the extreme um, contention I won't go with, but the bit that really I have experienced as working particularly well is the realization there's four main ways or for people to take on board information. You know, lots of people like to see, um, uh, lots of people prefer to hear or speak. Um, so let's call them sort of, you know, visual auditory. There's a third one called digital, which is people who prefer to, you know, read data or assimilate a, a large sheet of Excel. And then a fourth one called kinesthetic, 
which is more the, let's call them the, the more physical ways to gather information. So smelling, testing, feeling in both the grasping sense and the, and the emotional sense. And when you have these four, you realize, oh, okay, they're like different languages. And, you know, so it's an analogy that works well in North America with, you know, both either in Canada or in the U.S., you go, if someone is speaking the other prevalent language in your state and you're not speaking it, you don't discern what they're saying with the same snappiness. You know, it, it makes a little bit less sense. Si je commence à parler comme ça maintenant, il y a pas mal de gens au Canada qui vont me comprendre et il y en a d'autres qui vont dire, wow, it's a little bit less intelligible than what he was speaking, you know, 30 seconds ago, because these are languages. And when you realize there's four languages of communication, you got to see it, you got to hear it, you got to make sense of it, and you got to feel it. And every single one of us has a strong preference for two. I've worked with a lot of people in strategy consulting and a lot of strategists through habit or self-selection are very visual digital. They're going to go, show me the data. And you'll find that a lot of data scientists will be like that, you know, show me the data, show me the data. And then you'll find it's the same people in a, in a, in a management team meeting. It's the same people that tend to be a bit reticent to the strategist or the data scientist answer. And when you reveal a little bit, you find that there are the people who tend to be very auditory kinesthetic. So the way to convince them is something that sounds, you know, it's, it's through words and something that feels right rather than through picture with something that makes sense. And unsurprisingly, you'll find that a lot of the people who are very auditory kinesthetic in a not, unsur not, not uncommonly around the table, they'll be your um, salesperson salespeople, very sort of auditory, digital, auditory, kinesthetic. They'll be your HR person who's going to be very um, kinesthetic, so very emotional, or as in not emotional, but, you know, being, being, um, being convinced through emotions and the power of a human impact and marketing. And so between sort of sales, marketing, HR, you've got three really big constituencies. Whereas you'll find that, you know, your lawyer, um, you know, the legal team, the finance team, the engineering team, they all go, yep, makes complete sense with this data And so one of the things I've done with clients over the years is I'm often asked to facilitate away days. And one of the things I do is now I don't do it sort of cold. I always ask for at least a day of training beforehand. And one of the things that I insert is exactly that, is the realization that there's, there's these four languages. And so we're going to be aware of everyone's preference and we're going to use all four languages as it were. I think that to be really successful as a data scientist, not only do you need to learn how to build your product, build your solution, but you also need to learn how to sell it. And I think that that chapter impactful words will really help you, the audience, get inside your stakeholders' heads and really understand how best to communicate with them so that you could sell your idea to them. Talk to us about memorable metrics. You know, what's the importance of these when it comes to being strategic? If impactful word is really about convincing lots of people through a language that works for them, then the metrics is, is sort of distilling the outcome in one number. Not 400, just one number. And uh, I'm going to spoil a bit the fun, but there's one in the book that I really use often and I love, which is imagine for a minute if the metric you use for your financial success in life is income or salary depending on whether you're independent or, or, or employed. And you go, okay, hold that for a minute. And you go, right, that's my metric. Now, if you're going to try and maximize that, for, for the moment, let's go with people that are employed. There's really just two avenues. If you're going to try and maximize your salary, there's only two avenues. It's either sort of achieve greater recognition in your current organization 
through either you know working harder or lobbying for a, a salary increase or uh, responding to the overtures or third parties who tell you there's another job going at another organization and hopefully be paid a bit more okay so that's really that's gonna you know measure drives behavior and and what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed and so one of the ways to convince people of an outcome is to highlight for them the metric we're now going to move to in the future. And imagine now I tell you, okay, Harpreet, what we're going to do now is instead of trying to maximize salary, we're going to add a second metric. We're not necessarily replace it, but we're going to add a second metric, which is going to be salary per hour. Now, right away, you see that your approach to life goes in a very different direction. Because now if you're trying to maximize salary per hour, you go, whoa, 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 okay. So I've maximized salary in the previous instance. Now if I have to maximize salary per hour, I've got to find a way to reduce hours. So how do I do that? Well, you could cut corners, but that's probably a short-term solution because that's going to impact your salary because people are not going to necessarily you know, keep employing you. Or maybe you get more productive. So you achieve the task you were paid to do in a slightly uh, less time. And you go, oh, that's an interesting one. And so one of the things you find is literally one of the best ways to trickle, you know, sometimes people talk about nudge economics. One of the ways to trickle and trigger a slightly different behavior is to put on the table a new metric. And so you, you kind of, you get people, it's like uh, shifting a, a boat, you know, a big ship. There is, um, you've got the rudder and the rudder is a way to turn the boat. And then at the bottom of a, when the when the ship is really, really big, and you're talking super tanker, the rudders have a rudder. That rudder is called a trim tab. And the trim tab is a tiny rudder that is used to help turn the rudder to help turn the ship. And I found often that a good choice of metric can be the trim tab. You go, you know, what am I trying to maximize? Am I trying to maximize salary or salary per hour or, you know, assets? And now you go, whoa, now if I'm looking at assets, now I'm starting looking at the way I spend my money as well, not just how much I earn and how productive I am about it, but how do I save it? What do I do with it? What do I deploy it on? And you go, oh, now that I've maximized my, optimized my salary per hour, now I've got a few more hours where I can start thinking about what do I do with that income to help build assets? And all of that, um, sort of cascade waterfall of, of thinking was just arrived at by introducing one tiny metric. Absolutely. Love that. That's very well put. Thank you so much. And one of the huge reasons I was recommending this book to a lot of people I work with because of that, that section, we have this thing at work where we our one metric that matters is um, dollars shipped per hour. Mm -hmm. And um, I always thought that was interesting way to measure productivity across the company. But yeah, with, without getting too much into detail about what I do at work. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic, no, it's a fantastic yeah. one. And one of the things I would do if I work with, with you guys, you know, maybe after you've read the, you know, the 10 copies of the book, one of the things I would do is I would say, imagine if for a day we swap this metric by something else. I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying, let's see the impact. So effectively, it's a way to um, road test, you know, or mm -hmm. test drive. What a different met what is the behavior that a different metric would trigger? And if that behavior is desirable, then maybe that metric should also, you know, get a bit closer to uh, to prime time. If the metric, if the behavior is not desirable, then it was the wrong metric. But it's always good. I like the way the one is expressed. It sounds, you know, accurate, small enough and specific enough to create uh, desired behavior. I would always, you know, if a firm runs out of puff, if either the growth is not there or there's an issue, then a really good way to unearth new growth is to slightly tweak the metric. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
So talk to us about how to create a compelling story. Cause I feel like this is something that, so I'm also data science mentor. We've got a network of 2,500 mentees. And one of the biggest questions they always come to me with is um, how do, what, what does storytelling mean? Like, how do I, how do I create a compelling story? Talk to us about some tips uh, that we can Yeah. Learn. So I've got, I've got one big one, which is really, really, really easy which is, you remember the pyramid principle we talked about half an hour ago, when you had a big qualitative problem and you structured it with your pyramid uh, very early in the project, and then you went down the hump of the roller coaster to test, you know, if you're Ikea and you test, your big one is, we, you know, we, uh, we have pivoted away from the blue stores to a beautiful new world in 2022. And you've got all these ideas. And at the end, when you tell a story, what you find is, the structure that you can use for your story is the structure you unearthed really, really early in the project to structure the problem. And the best way to talk about it is that a problem, a story has a backbone and the backbone of that story is this, you can discover really early in a project because whether or not, for example, we talk, let's talk about the marriage, you know, not the marriage, the wedding. Uh, marriage is another whole issue, but the wedding is a great success. You go, oh, we need to be true, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, next year, uh, we're having, a, you know, 2021 is a great year for us, blah, blah, blah. Now, you can create the structure now, and then you end up with lots of, lots of components. And then imagine that you go and present it to your stakeholder. So in the case of the, you know, your romantic partner, and you go, right, next year is going to be fabulous for us. And you go, okay, well, why is that? Well, let me tell you a story. So first, none of us is going to have COVID. And then you and I are going to have a fantastic time in six months of lockdown. And then we'll, we'll keep our jobs. Now, the person listening is like, oh, tell me more. I like this story. I'm not sure I believe it yet, but I want to hear more. And all you want from a story is you're not trying to convince people in one go. You want them to go, tell me more. And because at the very top is the big end result. You know, we've had a fantastic year or we're having a fantastic year. And then you go, okay, what are the three building blocks? Tell me more. Now, tell me more, tell me more. And by the time you get to tell me more, when you end up at the very bottom, you have things like, you know, let's get everyone's email address and then select a font and then agree on a picture. At which point you go, oh yeah, that bit I can see is easy. So if all of these 27 or 81 small components are really easy and are obvious, um, you know, to achieve, then the story that I told you is achievable. And so a lot of communication training is a bit more on what I call the leaves rather than the backbone, because I use a tree analogy. So on the, you know, on the shiny, shiny, and I'll come to that in a minute if you want about, you know, Adlang swagger, a lot of that is on the shiny, shiny. But in particular, if you're a data scientist, the bit you're going to be really, really good at is structure. And so when scientists in general, or highly structured people go, how do I tell a story? I said, don't obsess about the shiny, shiny. The shiny, shiny is a lot of things that people who are not very structured use to tell a story. If you're highly structured yourself, then you have one advantage that's waiting for you, which is you can tell a story in a highly structured way that will make people want to go, tell me more, tell me more. Absolutely love that. Thank you so much. So last formal question here before we jump into a real quick random round. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Three big ideas. I've already had two, I think, and I don't know where the third one is. That's what's going to be exciting. So my first big idea was about 10 years ago, something called Six Moods, and it's the uh, sort of a theory of human diversity. 
which is going to probably going to be relaunched at some point, but was a, is a great, has helped a lot of people in their marriages and relationship with bosses, a very interpersonal, very EQ um, uh, related. The big idea in this book is the roller coaster of strategic thinking, which again, I think in more professional contexts in the field of sort of IQ and problem solving, the reason I've, I've managed to earn a living on my own for 15 years is because sort of repeat, big repeat clients come back and go, you know, monitor Deloitte, I've trained maybe, I don't know, a few five, well, no, 3,000 people. And they keep coming back and go, yes, we like it. Please tell us more about this. And then, so if it's 100 years in the future, I don't know. I've done um, emotional, I've done my contribution, as it were, to the field of emotional intelligence, to the field of intelligence. I don't know where the third is going to be. I don't know, maybe um, either, you know, artificial intelligence, possibly, is, or is definitely where I'm looking at the moment. That is awesome. And what was the, the name of that emotional intelligence? You said the six moods? Uh, six moods. The six moods of success. Oh man, whenever that is relaunched, I would love to, <laughs> to have you back on the show to talk about it. I shouldn't talk about it because we're really here to talk about how to be strategic, but yeah. you ask, you know, what yeah. do I want to be remembered for? And it's like, yeah, these are my, you know, my two big ideas so far. Yeah. That one thing I've been huge on recently is just the, the EQ, emotional intelligence type of stuff. So thank you so much for sharing that. So first question here in the random round, what are you currently most excited about or what are you currently exploring? So both of these is sort of, well, there's two. One is uh, AI, neural network. That's kind of, you know, I spend, I spend a month a year reading business books. So I found that, you know, uh, one of the classic tips is, you know, read every day. I, I find it hard, I think, for, as is for most people. And then when you live in London as a Southern Frenchman, you, you, you know that January is a horrible month. So I usually take January off and I go somewhere in the tropics and I read 30 business books in 30 days. That usually means I finish 20 and then I put them on my sort of reading list on Goodreads. And it really stimulates uh, books about philosophy, about marketing, about business. And the last few years, obviously, like many people, sort of, you know, blockchain, AI, all of these things. And then the other one, the other field that excites me is sort of the, what people might call new growth. You know, there's a beautiful book called Donut Economics by an Oxford professor called Kate Rayworth. And she formalizes an insight that many people have noticed, which is effectively the planet can't continue like that, and we don't have a planet B. And so the last, whatever, 200 years of industrial revolution, you notice that all of that correlates very, very strongly with extracting fossil fuels. And that was probably a one-off, and we're going to pay for it for, you know, if we can, for the next, whatever, 100 years. And so it's that balance of... So we've got a planet that's running out of livability and possibly an economic development model around growth at all costs that's unsustainable. And on, on the other hand, you've got sort of the pinnacle of human ingenuity, which at the moment is a mixture of sort of AI and CRISPR and all of that. And I think it's a race between the two. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? There's a few interesting things. So the way I would put it is, you know, I have hypothesis about my third idea. For an idea to work, let me answer it slightly differently. To leave a mark, you've got to be away from the majority of people at the point at which you have your idea. But by the time you bring your idea, they either come around to it or you've come around to them. Because if you just have a slightly wacky idea that nobody cares for, you just, uh, you know, you know, this, the classic bit, if you're, a, if you're a leader without follower, you're just a crazy guy taking a walk. And so if you have a, a thought, an idea that you think has a big importance to the world, then you've got to be beyond the established sort of um, the agreed 
plane of reflection or the you know agreed ideas, but it can't be too far out. And so there's a few crazy ones I have, and I'm still establishing whether they are too far out or they can actually make sense. That's awesome. I'm going to be chewing on that uh, idea all day. Thank you so much for that. If you could put up a billboard anywhere, what would you put on it? As a Frenchman who's lived in Britain for 25 years, I married a Brit who's father to a, a Brit who's now about to become a Brit and still supports France at rugby and, and many other international sports. My heart is bleeds at you know, Brexit and the split from uh, the European Union uh, in particular because of the way it was, as, as a strategist, I find that the way in which it was presented was so mendacious, you know, the benefits, the upside. And you know it now because even though it's going to happen and, and you know, as it were, Brexit has won, um, they're still complaining it's not the real Brexit because we still can't find a single benefit that Britain's going to get out of that. And so to answer your question, if I could pull, put one, I would put a giant one some, somewhere you know, on the white cliffs of Dover. And it would be something like, you know, wait for us, we'll be back. What are you currently reading? So as I mentioned, I read in January. And ah. so what I have is I have a satchel. I have a very big satchel on Goodreads. I think I have like uh, there's about 500 books, about half of which I've read. The other half is kind of to be devoured at some point. And then I put stuff into it in a bizarre way to not tempt myself to read before the time, if you see what I mean, you know, to not have snacks between meals. Yeah. I tend to just come up with a book and then put it straight in the satchel without necessarily kind of spending too much time. So I'm sorry on that. I can't answer no. very, very well either. No, no worries. Somebody I interviewed earlier this week a label mate, I guess, if you can call it, another Penguin Random House author, uh, Dr. Kristen Bush, uh, released a book called The Serendipity Mindset, which yes. is based on our conversation. I think you'd enjoy that one. Absolutely. Yes, it is on my list. Absolutely. I've watched a video of his conversation with Salon London, which is a London-based sort of mm -hmm. um, intellectual circle where he did a beautiful presentation. And I love that. Yeah. What song do you currently have on repeat? Uh, I have a playlist on repeat. Um, because I mentioned, you know, I, I spent a month sort of somewhere hot every January, and this January I was in Argentina and Uruguay. It didn't completely end well because I broke two ribs by having a horse riding accident in Uruguay, so, you know, my mm. fault. But on the drive from Montevideo to La Colonia is one of these things where I, I, I was listening to radio and I was shazamming the whole way, which is there's a whole playlist put together by a local DJ that just absolutely tickled all the things that work for me. And so I'm listening on repeat to my sort of Uruguay playlist, which was really put together in about an hour's drive outside of Montevideo. And obviously now the algorithmic powers of Spotify has, able to, has been able to turn that into four or five times the duration. So that's that my, awesome. that, yeah, exactly. The soundtrack of 2020 for me is uh, very Latin. I'd love to listen to that playlist if you could share that with me after this. That'd be uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to just jump into a random question generator just for a couple of questions here. All right. Starting off with, what is your go-to dance move? <laughs> well, um, as a teenager, I was called the bell ringer because I had a sort of move that was a mixture of head and kick that rung bell. So it's not particularly pretty, but I can still do it. What issue will you always speak your mind about? Oh, that's interesting. Fairness and unfairness. It's kind of like I'm, I'm a very outspoken and, and slightly sort of, you know, angry person. And I, angry is too strong a word, but forceful person. And I always try to be a little bit less poof. But when I see things in the street, bad behavior, etc., I, I, I step in. 
What's your favorite book? Oh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, That's one for the nerd. I mean, this is a guy, Robert Piercek, it blew my mind. I think I read that, I'm going to say, in the 80s. And this is a man who decided to not just create a compendium of all human, whole philosophy, but to invent an entirely new philosophy. Um, And, you know, it's obviously not about motorcycle. It's very little about Zen. It's a whole new philosophy. And I just thought, I was blown away by the writing, by the story, but by also the, the sort of the ballsiness of just going, hey, let's try and start a, a whole new school of philosophy. All right. Definitely have to check that one out as well. How can people connect with you and where can they find you online? So Fred Pellard, I have a relatively distinctive name. There's quite a few Frédéric Pellard in particular in Quebec. So obviously somewhere in the tree, ancestors decided that North America was better than France. Um, but Fred Pellard, F-R-E-D-P-E-L-A-R-D. And then you've got the .com and you've got the website with the book, uh, strategic.how. Fred, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Harper. And I love the fact that you read the book. Not every interview has. And that uh, clearly it looks like it has had an impact on you and on your company. 